Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. I am Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And we have with us today State Representative Natalie Blay. My State Representative Natalie Blay. Hello, Natalie Blay. Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Oh, it's always great to have you, Representative Blay. So um, I think what we want to start with, you were the first Franklin District representative. What is the first Franklin District? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, the first Franklin District changed a lot uh, as a result of redistricting, so I appreciate you asking the question. Uh, the, it now includes, if you if you were to draw a line up vertically through Greenfield and down through you know, Montague, Sunderland, Leverett, and just went west all the way to Berkshire County, uh, that is the first Franklin District. So it includes Ashfield, Bernardston, Buckland, Charlemont, Colerain, Conway, Deerfield, Hawley, Heath, and we get to the middle of the alphabet, uh, Leverett, Leiden, Monroe, Montague, Rowe, Shelburne, Sunderland, Waitley, and precincts 5, 6, 7, and 8 in Greenfield. Bill, she did it in alphabetical order. <laughs> it's the only way I can remember them all. If, if this was a field sobriety test, we'd now have you do it backwards. <laughs> I had I, I had a case once where an officer said to the driver, "Say the alphabet backwards." Oh, I had that. I and could never you? do that. And no, I can never. No one can do that. No. That was the whole point. So I asked the officer on the stand, "Would you please say the alphabet backwards?" Ooh. To which there was an objection, oh, wow. and the judge sustained it. And I said, "Why? That was a perfectly great question. Let's see him do it." Uh, anyway, the judge was not entertained, but it. Uh, let's let us move on. Let's. I won't ask you the judge's name. Let's move on. <laughs> So we are we are in the beginning few months of this legislative session, Representative Blaze. So, um, what are your priorities this session? Yeah. Uh, so as you know, I've, I've sponsored thirty eight bills. We'll probably have around another twenty you know, home rule petitions that are initiated by one of the eighteen communities in the first Franklin district. Um, you know, there's there's three things that I'm really going to be focused on. One, of course, is rural schools. We will uh, be introducing an omnibus rural schools package uh, based off of the 36 recommendations that were included in the report that was issued by the Rural School Commission. Um, I'm really excited to be working with a really strong group of advocacy organizations to support our regional transit authorities. Uh, in getting the baseline funding for them up, as well as um, you know, supporting them in other ways so that they can really deliver for our communities. They've been stretching every dollar as far as they possibly can, and the bottom line is that they need more support. And then the third thing that I'm really uh, focusing in on, is, and I think we've talked about this before, is you know, the state-owned land payment in lieu of taxes program. Um, you know, we've, there's a significant budgetary gap there that we've been able to close, um, but there's a formula that still needs to be changed because rural communities are disproportionately disadvantaged by this current formula. Ripley. Those are the top three. Well, I'd like to go to the one you mentioned first, if we might. You mentioned three, uh, the pilot uh, payment in lieu of taxes and the large 
large acreage of state lands in your district, district, why it's so important, rural transportation authorities. The first issue you mentioned is rural schools. And, and it seems to me that there is a significant issue, not only for your district, but for all of or most of Western Massachusetts, front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette dateline, Amherst, Comerford to fight for more funding. Senator acknowledges school struggles communities are facing in meeting with the, her meeting with the Amherst Town Council. There's a big gap between what is happening in terms of funding for schools, and I take it in your district as well, that this promise of significant more state funding for schools doesn't seem to be reality. So help us understand why and help us understand what can be done to remedy that. Yeah, you know, there is a recognition, and, and I'll stick to rural just um, because that, that really is the first Franklin district um, outside of Greenfield and Montague. Um, there is an understanding when we, when we started looking at the Student Opportunity Act and, and passed that historic uh, funding package for education uh, that because of, of the metrics we used, uh, it wasn't going to reach rural school districts. And that is why we, why we fought to include language for the Rural Schools Commission. Um, it did just complete its report, put out its recommendations in July. And one of the you know, top line recommendations there was if you're not going to change the Chapter 70 funding formula to better reflect the fiscal challenges that rural schools are facing in communities across the Commonwealth, then the next best thing is to increase rural school aid. And Senator Adam Hines uh, was the one who fought to get that line item created. Uh, it started with you know, a pretty meager sum of money that was distributed throughout the state to rural school districts. Uh, at the in FY23, it was it was up to 5.5 million dollars, which was a historic high for for that line item, uh, and it really makes a difference for our rural schools as they are working hard to provide. You know, same quality of education that every student across the Commonwealth is the very best uh, that we possibly can. And I, I will say that I was very pleased to see in the governor's budget an increase to the rural school aid line item. She is the very first governor to ever uh, recognize the importance of rural school aid and increased it from $5.5 million to $7.5 million. The recommendation in the report was for $60 million. Uh, so we still have a ways to go there. And, you know, I'll be working with House colleagues to see what we can do uh, to get that number up even higher. Rep. Lay, is the increased cost for rural schools a matter of transportation expenses, or is there something else at play here? It's everything. Uh, it's the scale, just, you know, the scale when you have... Um, fewer students in the classroom, and this is what we're seeing as a result of declining population here in Western Massachusetts, um, you, know, you still have to pay for that transportation. Uh, you still have to pay to have that teacher in the classroom. You still have health care costs uh, for retirees who, you know, back when these schools were much, much larger, you had a larger employee pool there. 
Uh, so it's, it's a lot of different things, and we're trying to get at each and every one of them. One of the recommendations in the report was around the line items for non-pupil uh, resident transportation. And that is a, a line item that has historically been funded at $250,000. And the actual need was estimated over the last couple of years, it's hovered around $4.2 million. Um, Governor Healy fully funded that line item at $5.3 million. That's not something that only impacts rural school districts, that impacts every district across the Commonwealth. So there's a lot of um, excitement about that particular piece of, of H1 as well. So Repolite, let me see if I understand. There's a lot of discussion about chapter funding and chapter 70 and the funding formula. Are you saying that that formula can be remedied, at least the, the consequences of that formula can, and the inequalities and the inefficiencies that it promotes can be remedied by special legislation, by special line items, which is what's happening uh, in, with the, regard to the rural schools? Am I understanding you correctly in that regard? Well, the Chapter 70 Foundation formula uh, is how we fund schools in the Commonwealth. And you know, the, the problem is that when you really dig down deep into it, um, it's, it's not actually helping to address uh, what's happening in the classrooms. You know, the fact that we are having uh, fewer students but still having to maintain that single teacher. Uh, the, those costs, the, the scale, um, just is not something that's currently reflected in the Chapter 70 formula. So we had to do something else, and that is rural school aid. It's looking at a rural transportation account. It's looking at special education costs. It's looking at other transportation funding. Um, it's looking at health care so that we can really begin to address those other pieces. Uh, I don't think that there's an appetite right now. Well, yeah, I don't think that there's an appetite right now to open up the Chapter 70 formula uh, you know, to tweak it in, in many different ways. Uh, but I, I think it needs to be reviewed. I think it would be a valuable exercise uh, for the Commonwealth to undertake at this time. Well, Representative Natalie Blay, it, it, the commission which you alluded to before is the actual title is the Commission on Long-Term Fiscal Health of Rural School Districts. So no matter how much there's a line item in this year's budget, until there is a restructuring of how schools are funded, particularly rural schools, we are very familiar, painfully familiar with it in uh, our town. And I think seven of your towns belong to the Mohawk School District. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I think when, that is the number. And when you mentioned One the, of the largest geographic districts, if not the largest geographic school district in the Commonwealth. And I didn't know that, but I, what I do know is when our daughter graduated in 1986, there were 760 people in Mohawk Trail uh, Regional School District and uh, school, high school. Now I think there's 350, less than half the number. And the economies of scale, which you were just alluding to, I, I'm like, we need a long-term solution because the budget remains, the costs remain the same for half the students. It, it's a really thorny long-term issue, isn't it? It is, and you know, we're trying to get at it in every way that we can. You know, we're not only looking at the budget as a mechanism to address these issues. There's a bill that we're pulling together 
uh, also you know, would, would codify uh, a lot of these things to ensure that for the long term, these programs and these policies are in place to support our rural schools. I have a question regarding the legislative process around this. You represent a rural district. Most representatives represent, well, urban districts, hence the, I think, some of the uh, disparities that we see in funding. How do you go about uh, garnering support for something that is not intrinsically important to, well, most of the representatives in terms of their looking out for their districts? Hmm. So it, it's, a, it's a lot about talking, <laughs> you know, having conversations with my colleagues in the state house to build awareness about the, the unique fiscal challenges that rural schools are facing. Uh, we're also currently working on you know, a tour to bring people out to Western Massachusetts to visit some of the schools, to talk with students, talk with teachers, talk with parents, administrators uh, about how this impacts their everyday lives. Uh, and we have a new education chair in the house side. And so, you know, <laughs> I think it was two weeks ago when we were in session, you know, I printed out the rural schools report and brought it to her on the house floor and said, you know, this is something that we need to talk more about. Uh, so just building awareness. And I think that there is a real genuine desire amongst our colleagues when when we flag something that has this big of an impact in our districts, there is a real desire to help and to want to make it right. So we're going to keep doing that. Okay, and we're glad that you are. We are talking with State Representative Natalie Blay. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Representative Blay, I want to ask you about the committee sign the committee assignments which you've gotten uh, in this legislative session. We'll be right back. January. I'm watching the northern lights swirl You were in nowhere Massachusetts You were in nowhere More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., eCycle releases certificates for their spin studio in Wilbraham. eCycle is a high-energy environment spin studio with a diverse schedule that will tailor to your fitness, from beginners to competitive levels. Classes focus on endurance, strength, intervals, high intensity, and recovery. Get your spin on at eCycle, and this Tuesday, you save 30%. eCycle in Wilbraham, available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Meet Sister Holiday, a chain-smoking, heavily tattooed queer nun turned amateur sleuth in Scorched Grace, a new mystery novel by local author Margot Duahi. Pick up Scorched Grace at Broadside Bookshop in downtown Northampton. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Browse Broadside to your heart's content. Order virtually any book on the Broadside website, then pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. I'm going down to the corner store. Sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era. Unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy. Your neighbor is the person behind the counter. 
And Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling. And like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom and pop shop, supporting the other mom and pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley, coffee roasted in Northampton, honey from Deerfield, kombucha from Greenfield, and they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield too. Greek olive oil, Italian pasta, German Riesling, Cooper's Corner, an old chestnut of a corner store on the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with First Franklin State Representative Natalie Blay. It is 193rd legislative session that began in January. And Natalie Blay, at the beginning of the session, um, there were committee assignments given. And uh, could you explain how that process works and what you were assigned? Yeah, absolutely. I am. I'm really excited about committee assignments this session. Uh, there's a new committee. Uh, it is a committee on agriculture, and this was a committee that was part of the Environment, Natural Resources, and Agriculture Committee last session. Uh, so now there will be, and, and it was known as ENRA. Uh, now it will be an Environment and Natural Resources Committee. And there is also now an agriculture committee. Uh, so I have been named as vice chair of the agriculture committee. I'm very excited about standing up a brand new committee that will be looking at many of the issues that are important to the First Franklin District in, in terms of farms, agriculture, uh, food security issues. Uh, it pretty much speaks to the heartbeat of the First Franklin District. Did you ask for that assignment? Can you ask for an assignment? Or is it just a bit of here's what the Speaker of the House thinks would be good for the House in terms of which representative is assigned to which committee and who becomes the chair and the vice chair? That's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. You know, if, if you have an interest in serving on a particular committee, uh, you're, you're, the Speaker is certainly open to talking with you about how serving on that committee could be good for, for your district. Um, but I think he's also just very, this is Speaker Mariano, he's very in touch with um, individual members' strengths and certainly what's important to them. And I think that that is reflected in my committee assignments. You're not only um, am I honored to serve as vice chair of the Agriculture Committee, I'm also on the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, there, are, I think there are maybe three of us here from Western Massachusetts on the Ways and Means Committee. That's a joint uh, committee, right? It's a joint Ways yep. and Means Committee, which yep. means both and chambers of the legislature. Is that's right. Uh, I'm on the Joint Committee on Transportation and the Joint Committee on Tourism, Arts, and Culture. So if you look at that portfolio of committee assignments, it is a direct reflection of the issues of importance in, in my district. And so I, I think it's to your question, Bill, it's, it's a little of both there, certainly advocating for your district and, and the speaker understanding what's important to your district um, and him also wanting to make sure he has the right people on these committees. 
And if I could just circle back to the to the Committee on Agriculture and talking about farms, food security, um, and and agriculture generally, how do you involve? I saw your you were photographed um, along with uh, I think Senator Paul Mark and others at a maple sugar uh, farm recently. I saw it in the recorder um, and highlighting during this maple sugaring season um, what the conditions of that industry is. How do you make sure when you're doing all this important work and you have so many demands that the stakeholders have access to you, that you hear from the ground what the real needs of your district are? Well, I think, you know, I'm a big fan of meeting people where they are. Uh, So getting out there and talking with people on the ground about what they are experiencing is, is critically important. Uh, so, you know, Senator Comerford and I went out there with a new MDAR commissioner, who Ashley Randall, who is from Deerfield, uh, and Winton Pitkoff, who is formerly of Plainfield. Uh, he is the uh, coordinator for the Mass Maple Association. You know, we organized an event at Williams Sugar House to be able to talk about the importance of sugar houses to, uh, to the local economy. But also, we were able to talk about how climate change is, is impacting many farmers' ability to make <laughs> uh, maple syrup because you know, the season is changing so much uh, from year to year in terms of when you can start uh, tapping trees and, and when the sap starts to flow. Um, but you know, being able to be out there and to use social media, to use uh, local media coverage, to be able to amplify uh, concerns uh, or economic opportunities that, that we're seeing on the ground is, is going to be a critically important part of this committee's work. And I hope that we'll be able to do farm tours across the state. You know, I, I love talking about rural Massachusetts, but I also want to really dig deep on urban agriculture and how that is benefiting some of our urban communities. Well, I know that speaking of, of you having to... Uh... Uh, meet with a lot of the stakeholders in your district. You're traveling right now. I think you're on the highway on your way back to Greenfield. Uh, I know that um, as one of your constituents that you always make it a point to uh, visit your your constituent uh, towns and individuals who have specific needs, and I, I know how busy you keep yourself doing the people's work. I want to thank you, Representative Blay. Thank you. I, I really enjoy working for you, Buzz, every day. <laughs> this love fest has been brought to you by. <laughs> and by the way, my car needs washing really bad. <laughs> Representative, you, Matt. I, I work for you. I mean, that's the bottom line. <laughs> there you go. District, so well, seriously, <laughs> Bill and I are so grateful when we have the opportunity to speak to you, and it, it, uh, we are always learning when you're um, uh, on our show. So, thank you so much. Drive safely and enjoy Greenfield when you get there. Thanks, everybody. You need warm and sunny days, but still a cold and freezing nighttime for just a few weeks. Maple syrup time. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Police are investigating the discovery of a body in a Ludlow home Thursday morning. 
Ludlow dispatchers received a call around 9.17 a.m. from Hamden County Sheriff deputies. They were at a home on James Street to conduct a court-ordered eviction. When they arrived at the home, they found a deceased woman inside. The Ludlow Police Department and state police assigned to the district attorney's office are investigating the cause of death, but say there is no danger to the public. Retiring UMass Amherst Chancellor Kumbal Subhaswamy is taking on a new role. Subhaswamy is being appointed as Interim Senior Vice President for Academic and Student Affairs and Equity in Boston. His responsibilities will include oversight of the academic program throughout the University of Massachusetts system and establishing a strategic vision for equity at the five campuses and their 74,000 students. Some progress in the fight to save Elmer's in Ashfield. A community group has signed a purchase and sale agreement to acquire the store after the kickoff of an ambitious fundraising effort earlier this year. The group, under the name Elmer's Community Center, Inc., announced on Wednesday they agreed to pay $275,000 for the building and all restaurant equipment. Through the purchase and sale agreement with Greenfield Savings Bank, the bank agreed to forgive all back taxes owed. Elmer's Community Center continues to raise funds for major renovations and the eventual reopening of the store and cafe. According to the organization's website, they're about one-third of the way to their fundraising goal. A smidgen of sunshine this morning, then increasing clouds in a high of 42 to 46. Light rain and snow develops after 7 p.m. tonight, evolving to all snow overnight, a low of 28 to 34. Lingering light snow tomorrow morning, accumulation according to a couple of inches in the valley, up to four inches in the Berkshires. Then a mostly cloudy afternoon, a high of 38 to 42. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El líder republicano del Senado, Mitch McConnell, se unió a un coro de ataques generalizados contra el presentador de Fox News, Tucker Carlson, por su descripción del ataque del 6 de enero al Capitolio desde que accedió a más de 40.000 horas de imágenes de seguridad. Carlson y su equipo tuvieron acceso exclusivo a la cinta de seguridad que rodeaba el ataque gracias al presidente de la Cámara de Representantes, Kevin McCarthy, lo que generó preocupaciones de que el anfitrión usaría las cintas para difundir una nueva ola de desinformación. McConnell dijo que se alineó con los comentarios emitidos el martes por la mañana por el jefe de policía del Capitolio de los Estados Unidos, Tom Manger, a sus bases criticando las conclusiones ofensivas y engañosas de Carson sobre el asedio. McConnell dijo que los comentarios de Manger son la opinión correcta, pero el líder republicano del Senado no llegó a criticar al presidente de la Cámara cuando se le preguntó si McCarthy cometió un error al darle acceso a Carson a las imágenes de seguridad. McConnell respondió diciendo, mi preocupación es cómo se representó, que es un tema diferente. En otras informaciones, la Casa Blanca dijo que respaldó la legislación presentada el martes por una docena de senadores para otorgar a la administración nuevos poderes para prohibir la aplicación de video TikTok de propiedad china si representan amenazas para la seguridad nacional. El respaldo impulsa los esfuerzos de varios legisladores para prohibir la popular aplicación, la cual es utilizada por más de 100 millones de estadounidenses. El proyecto de ley le da al Departamento de Comercio la capacidad de imponer restricciones que incluyen la prohibición de TikTok y otras tecnologías que presentan riesgos para la seguridad nacional, dijo el senador demócrata Mark Warner, quien preside el Comité de Inteligencia. El presidente ejecutivo de TikTok, Zhou Zhichu, comparecerá ante el Congreso el 23 de marzo. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
We are joined by Gwen Agna, who is the vice chair of the Northampton School Committee. She was for many years the beloved, and that is the right word, principal at the Jackson Street School, Jackson Street Elementary School. Gwen Agna, thank you so very much for being with us. There is a really crucial decision that the Northampton School Committee has to make, and it is a hiring decision. Who's going to be the next superintendent? Tell us about the process, where it stands, and what happens now. The process is extensive. We just finished having the search committee, which was appointed by the mayor, review the applicants. There were 11 applicants. And through a process of determining whether they met our criteria, we decided to interview eight candidates. So we spent about a week every night interviewing these eight candidates and have sent four finalists to the school committee, of course, which I'm a member of. But I was on the, the original search committee, and we're very happy with the four finalists that we have. What happens now? Four finalists. What's the process? We spent a lot of time at school committee last night determining that next the next steps, which are mainly getting community feedback. We, we really want to get what people want to see in a superintendent. And also after the public interviews of these four finalists, we want to hear from the public again what their thoughts are about it. So the week of this next week, we're going to hold what we call focus groups. They're all over the city. And if you would like to know where they are, you can go to the Northampton Public School website and press on the tab superintendent search. And all of those focus groups are listed on there. And some are virtual, so you don't have to show up. And the following week, March 20th, we're going to interview the four finalists. We don't know exactly which date yet um, we will be interviewing, but we'll interview them for approximately an hour and a half each. And we'll ask for inter ask for um, feedback then. And will those interviews be public? Will they be on uh, Zoom? And are they simply interviews, not simply, but are they interviews between the school committee members and the applicant for the job? Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. so the so the public is not involved in the interviewing at that time. Right. The school committee, because the school committee's responsibility is to hire the superintendent. We will be interviewing the four publicly, though. It will, it will be on Zoom, and also you can attend if you would like to go in person. We will uh, be posting where the interviews are and also the links for the Zoom and, and then what dates and times they are. So everybody should tune in or come to it. Four interviews, four separate dates? Four. Well, actually, we're going to do two per night. One uh, probably Monday the 20th because one person is flying in from Tennessee. And so we do know that she's going to be interviewed on the 20th and then another one that night and probably then either Wednesday or Thursday that week. I raised the issue just before we went on the air. I raised the issue with you, Gwen Agna, who is, and we note for our listeners just joining us, the vice chair of the Northampton School Committee, that this process leaves me with a certain discomfort. It always has not only for the Northampton School Committee, which is that the, the person, the applicant who interviews best um, is apt to, well, be hired. And being a great interviewee, thank you, uh, doesn't necessarily mean you'd be the best, the best 
superintendent. I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about that that you could share. Yeah, well, in my years at Jackson Street and before, I had a lot of experience with hiring. And I agree with you that sometimes the interviews don't reflect exactly how good they can be as the person in, in the position. However, there are other ways that you can find out about the person. You can, we are going to do site visits where they come from. So the school committee will go to those sites and talk to the people that these fan, finalists work with. And also their references. Now, everybody writes a good letter. Usually you don't put a bad letter into your packet. But um, I have found that if you call the references and say, okay, even off the record, just tell me if there are things that growth areas that you'd like to identify. You know, we do as much digging as we can because I, I agree with you that um, an interview doesn't always reflect the competence or the uh, capability of those people. Yeah, I like the reference question where you speaking to the persons because all persons applying for a job are asked for references and they give them and you and the hiring committee or the hiring entity calls the, those individuals i always like the question i know you're a big supporter of so-and-so that's why you're on their list of people to talk to but if you had to tell me one thing negative right mm -hmm. what's that and you know that gets to an interesting answer sometimes yeah it does we had a great question in their um, search committee about what would other people say is your greatest weakness? And yeah, it's same idea, yeah. Really reflect on themselves, too. I think it's really important. So, this process will go on now for the next couple of weeks. The focus groups will be focusing where the public can participate. Focusing on what? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, um, what we've said on our website is we, we'd like to hear from people about what you believe is going well in Northampton and should continue. What could be better? What qualities or characteristics would you like a superintendent to bring to our district? And any feedback you'd like to share about your experiences with the district and your hopes for a new superintendent? Buzz? Yes, Vice Chair uh, Gwen Agnew, this is Buzz Eisenberg. And my question, I'm not sure if it's even a fair question, but I got to ask it, which is, as a beloved principal for many years who worked with superintendents, don't you know more than the public about what makes for a good superintendent? Is your judgment uh, somehow more important than what the public, what you're going to hear at these various sites from the public? That's, that's a good question. I think um, I'm, I've been sort of wrestling with that as being a member of the school committee, because I do have an education background and a lot of experience, but not everybody on the school committee has that. And that's the point of a school committee. They're representative of the people, not necessarily of educators. Um, but I, I think that the important part of a focus group is to make sure that we choose a candidate who can communicate with the public and under, help the public understand what the challenging job of the superintendent is and of our school district currently, because we've got budget challenges and all those other things. So we want to find somebody who is able to communicate well with the public, and we want to know what the public cares about. Actually, thank you for that answer. That That's a great insight for me that I hadn't thought of, but it's true. How does this candidate interact with the public is a pretty important part of their job responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Gwen Agnet, there's going to be this process of focus groups, then there are going to be the two days of interviews with the four finalists for the superintendent's job. When will the school committee make the decision on making an offer? Right. We decided that we will deliberate on Monday, 
March 27th. So we will be interviewing and we'll be assembling the focus group data to make sure that we have all of the input from the community. And we will be reviewing that from the last interview through till Monday the 27th when we will gather again and deliberate about who we think would be the best candidate. There'll be an offer made to one of the candidates to be the superintendent of the Northampton schools. Is the is it set how long the contract would be for? I mean, what kind of a and what length of commitment is being asked of these candidates? It's not set. Um, the next step after we make an offer is the negotiation about salary and about terms of a contract. So that will be all depending on who the person is and our understanding of the qualifications. And in the interviews, do you ask for a length of commitment? I mean, it all depends on how it goes. Is, is the superintendent being successful to be sure? Mm -hmm. But this continuity, uh, it seems to me to be important. And if you could have a commitment for from principals or superintendents, it seems to me that that might be significant. Is it to, to you and your thinking in terms of who to hire? It's significant, except, you know, in knowing how what you can ask, that's fair. Um, you can't ask somebody if they're going to stay. But I think most candidates will volunteer to suggest why it is that they want to come to Northampton and their commitment to the community. And it's often something that is just voluntarily shared. So we, we get a sense of when they are. But superintendents do turn over. I, when my 30 years in Northampton, I worked for 10. Um, and it was, you know, there, it's a hard job. And there are people who find that it's not something that they are suited for or they want to move on. But my first superintendent, Bruce Willard, was here for nine years. He was the longest serving that I've worked for. Um, but since then, the, the landscape of education has changed so much that it's a hard job to do. Buzz points out to me that we don't want to lose track of who the con real constituents here are in some ways, the students. And I wonder yes. if students have a role and input into this process. Great question. We had two students on the search committee, which was fabulous. And I think the person from the Massachusetts School Committee organization who's leading us through this said it was unusual that students are part of the process. And they added so much to our process in determining who we wanted to make finalists. And there will be focus groups for students, both at the middle school and the high school. Um, and I think that the teachers from the elementary school will certainly communicate what they think would be important for their constituents. And then students can watch, I take it, watch the interviews, oh, and then there's yeah. input after them, after those interviews. That's part of the process for the school committee to hear what mm -hmm. the community says, including the community of students. Definitely. And there's a very active student union at Northampton High School, and they are are very open about their opinions and we really like that about them that, that they part they expect to be part of decision making that's great i can't think of a better lesson in democracy bill than than being part of that search i know gwen agna is the vice chair of the northampton school committee we thank you so much for your time today gwen when we look forward to having you back on the show i want to hear your views with regard to state funding we didn't have time to do talk about that today but we will in the future thanks so very much Oh, thank you. I, I look forward to coming back to talk about state funding. Thank you. Which we will do. We'll be right back. Teachers are talking.
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Paddington goes next door to borrow a cup of sugar from his neighbor, Mr. Curry. Mr. Curry is in a panic. He's expecting a visit from his great aunt Matilda. So Paddington volunteers to help Mr. Curry with his to-do list before Aunt Matilda's imminent arrival. Repairing the pipes in the bathroom, vacuuming the floor, baking a cake. But in typical Paddington fashion, nothing goes according to plan. The pipes burst and the bathroom floods. The vacuum cleaner misbehaves. And what the heck went wrong with that cake recipe, Paddington? The UMass Fine Arts Center presents Paddington Gets in a Jam, a Sunday matinee, March 12th at 3 p.m. For tickets, go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Will the well-meaning Paddington be able to make everything right before Aunt Matilda arrives? Be there for Paddington Gets in a Jam, Sunday, March 12th at 3 at UMass Amherst. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance, local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance, call for a quote, 586-1000. The beat goes on, the beat goes on. And this is Artbeat with our host, Donabel Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest to talk about a really exciting exhibit. I can't wait to hear about it. I've been reading about it. I can't wait to see it. Donabel, the microphone is yours. Yes, good morning. Happy Friday. So here's the thing. Uh, there's an amazing event happening right now in Holyoke. And let me tell you just a little bit about it. On May 6, 1935, the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA, was created by President 
Franklin D. Roosevelt to help provide economic relief to U.S. citizens who are suffering through the Great Depression. The WPA created over 5,000 jobs for artists and produced over 225,000 works of art, some of which can be found right here in Western Massachusetts. Joining us today is Don Sanders, Executive Artistic Director of MIFA, or Massachusetts International Festival of the Arts, who will speak about a WPA mural restoration project, which is happening right now. Welcome, Don. Welcome. I thank you so much. What a great introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don, it is an exciting time for first of all, for those of us who are new to MIFA, which I am one of those, please tell us about your organization and some of the projects you've already sponsored. Sure, uh, we, it was founded in 1994 as Massachusetts International Festival of the Arts and the acronym is MIFA, as you so accurately said. And I love your name. I, I want anybody named Donna Bell to know more about us. <laughs> 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 so um, it was really begun in order to bring international attention to the entire uh, valley region uh, and with the arts. And mm -hmm. I think I'm very proud to say I think we brought some great things, including uh, events at the Academy of Music, uh, the Symphony Hall in Springfield, uh, we, uh, at the Pine Art Center at UMass and various other locations around the valley. Those have included uh, actually the American first debut of Shakespeare's Globe Theater from London in- Wow. Uh, yeah. And we've had the National Ballet of Cuba. Uh, we have had Vanessa Redgrave when Stage West still existed. So, you know, this project, which is the WPA murals. And uh, I wanna give a shout out first to WPA. I'm gonna take it right off my sleeve and say, I really would like our current administration, President mm -hmm. Biden to think about initiating a similar kind of program to support mm -hmm. arts in America. So uh, important, yes. And I'd love to hear that a, a task force is convening to think how we could put some st more stability under our great arts scene in America. But so back to the- You're WPA. here, you're here, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, Yes. Uh, so back to Holyoke now. Yes. So that, so you've, you know, just some of the other projects that people around here are probably familiar with yes. are the Enchanted Circle Correct. Theater, yes. the Latin Wonderful. Jazz Festival, Correct. Celebrate Holyoke. Yes. And right now you're working with the Victory Theater that's yes. being renovated. Correct. And tell us there's a project <laughs> there that's part of Holyoke's 150th anniversary yes. celebration. So the Victory Theater is a 1600 seat theater in downtown Holyoke. Uh, built by probably one of the most pro prominent Broadway theater architects of the 1920s, uh, Mole and Brown, their archives are at Harvard. Three of their theaters are currently running among the 41 theaters that constitute Broadway. They were really top notch. Uh, Holyoke was very interesting in its heyday, had seven theaters, including a 3000 seat opera house. Wow, where? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was where, the, where you see the parking garage across from City Hall. That was, yeah, that was an opera house. <laughs> okay. 
And um, so the victory is the last, well, you know, uh, Springfield had the great court theater, which unfortunately was torn down. So the victory, in fact, is the last remaining Broadway size theater in Broadway shape, style, form in the entire valley. And so we have been working on getting it back open because it's 1600 seats and it has the capacity to house Broadway tier A Broadway touring shows, not all of them. I mean, we can't do Spider-Man, it's not that big, but uh, <laughs> maybe it will be. Uh, so it's a great, great project. And getting back to Mifa's history, we started in 1994. In 2005, we moved the offices to Holyoke to really take over this project of uh, restoring and reopening the Victory Theater. And we've been working on it since then. And I think we are in the final phase. Of course, as the executive artistic director, I always have to take the heat in making predictions like that, but I really believe we're <laughs> in that phase. So part of that phase was that in 1942, after there had been a fire in the theater, the theater opened in 1920, uh, and there was a fire in 1941. And when they went to redo the interior, which by that point it had become largely a movie house, uh, there had been uh, boxes on either side of the proscenium stage. And the owners then decided to put in, to take the boxes away. And I would say, because I think they realized that kids could shoot paper airplanes in front of the screen and so forth. So they took <laughs> the boxes away and they got into the WPA program and they commissioned uh, Vincent Maragliata uh, to do murals on either side of the proscenium opening of the theater. And just to give you an idea of the scale, the, the, the um, murals are 23 feet by top, uh, tall by 13 feet wide. So we're talking about two very large murals. And <clears throat> it, 10 years ago, we took the murals down they were in very deteriorated condition. Fortunately, they have been painted on canvas, not all a Italian, like a fresco, fresco right on the wall, the right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So we took them down, we put them in storage, <clears throat> and we have uh, brought them out to begin uh, the process. They are being restored so that they will be put back inside the restored theater. And we can now, see these where? Uh, they are at Wisteria Hearst Museum, one section, what I call a lunette, the top section uh, of one of the, 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 the subject of the murals is war and peace and uh, victory. Uh, and the victory, the top piece of the victory mural, which has a stunning, amazing sculptural woman holding a torch of victory. It's, I think when you see it, you'll be totally knocked out. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is on view uh, at the Wisteria Hearst Museum, which is the museum for the city of Holyoke. And it, we put it up there. It's been done. It's been totally restored. Wow. And it's part of the 150th anniversary this year of the founding of the city of Holyoke. So it's, it's we believe it's a beacon of hope You'll, when you mm -hmm. see the image. Uh, mm -hmm. And what's what's really moving to me is that in 1942, when it went up, of course, we were at war in Europe for the second time. And again, the, you know, the forces I'd like to think were the forces of good against the forces of evil. And we won again. But in 1942, who knew? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, this is a, a perfect time to be bringing this mural out. It looks stunning. I've seen the images and they are breathtaking. And so this exhibit will be up for one year. Is that true? That's correct. One year. So uh, we opened on March uh, yesterday, it was a sneak preview on mm -hmm. the, um, the uh, 9th and it will go for uh, a whole year. Now, this is only a section. There are more this is only more. one section, correct. But the rest of all the panels are being done and they will be done 
finished by over the next few months. Uh, the point is, is that we will keep them down until the building is ready to um, receive them. Ah, and, and be unveiled. You know, who knows, I think what will happen, you know, depending upon how uh, construction goes and how that goes, which is, of course, always dependent on money, uh, we will, you know, we would probably engage in uh, in dis exhibiting the other sections as they come out of the out of the oven. <laughs> wow. Wow, Don, this is such an exciting project and congratulations because I know you had a little preview yesterday. I'm looking forward to seeing this exhibit. If you wanna to go to the Wisteria Hearst Museum in Holyoke, definitely check it out. Don Sanders from MIFA, um, thank you so much for sharing this project with us and congratulations, really. Thank you so much and it's a pleasure to be with you. And I'd like to point out to our listeners who may not know this, that in fact, the Wisteria Hearst Museum is a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous venue. If you haven't been there, you have to do yourself the favor of going. It's really the, a treat. And these WPA murals, that, and there have been some in Springfield, obviously, since, since the Depression, since the Roosevelt administration, they are extraordinary pieces of work. It's a treasure trove. It is. Mm -hmm. Here, here. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Don Sanders, thank you so very much. Donna Bell, thank you so very much. We really appreciate this art beat. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. The drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Paul Gauguin Cruises. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. The jobs market? Overall, very good. 311,000 jobs in the latest month. Chuck Lieberman at Advisors Capital Management on today's report from the Labor Department shows unemployment rose from a half-century low of 3.4% to 3.6%. Bank rates Mark Hamrick on the next economic indicator to keep an eye on. With the February jobs report now out of the way, Federal Reserve officials look next to the upcoming Consumer Price Index due Tuesday as they chart the future course of monetary policy in their battle against inflation. Fed's expected to raise interest rates another half a percentage point this month. Two arch rivals may be snubbing the U.S. by making peace in the Middle East. 
Here's correspondent Cammie McCormick. But the February jobs report now out. Iran claims it's reached a deal with Saudi Arabia to resume diplomatic relations and reopen embassies. Saudi Arabia has now just confirmed it. This comes after years of tensions and according to the Iranians, a meeting in China. There has been no reaction from the Biden administration. Police in Europe say at least six people were killed at a Jehovah's Witness Hall, including a seven-month unborn baby before the suspect killed himself. CBS's Holly Williams at the Foreign Desk. Iran claims it's... German officials confirmed that the shooter was a 35-year-old man, a former member of the Jehovah's Witness congregation that he targeted with no criminal record. Political analysts say former President Trump's likely to decline an offer to testify before a New York grand jury investigating alleged hush money paid to Stormy Daniels. CBS's Rebecca Royfe. This is a signal that charges are likely imminent. It doesn't mean that they are necessarily coming down the road. New hope for people with chronic migraines. Pfizer says the FDA's approved its nasal spray, Zevegapant. The company says it can effectively mitigate migraines in adults with or without aura within 30 minutes. Vinyl sales are va 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 boom. Here's CBS's Stacey Lynn. People are buying records again. In fact, vinyl sales beat out CDs for the first time since 1987. According to the Recording Industry Association of America, 41 million were sold last year compared to 33 million CDs. Swifties were sweeping up her new album, but nostalgia was still strong. With big record sale numbers for Fleetwood Mac. And the Beatles. The Dow is down 45 points in early trading. S&P off 14. This is CBS News. CBS News is brought to you by Paul Gauguin Cruises. Artfully authentic, all-inclusive year-round cruising to Tahiti and the South Pacific. Visit pgcruises.com today. I'm Martin Hoke, the inventor of Navage Nasal Care, and I love Navage. I've told you about how your nose is the body's air filter, that Navage's powered suction will help flush out allergens, viruses, mucus, and germs, and that Navage will help you breathe better. But what do other people say about Navage? Like Tara, quote, My doctor wanted me to do saline rinses for my allergies, but I've never been able to successfully use a neti pot. Navage uses suction power, so it's foolproof. There are nights when I'll have particularly bothersome allergies. I'll bust it out, and the results are immediate. It's such a relief. It's become a lifesaver. Unquote. She's one of over 100,000 online reviews praising Navage, the all-natural solution trusted by over 3 million people to help you breathe better, sleep deeper, snore less, and stay healthier without drugs. Navage is available at Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, Target, Rite Aid, and online. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Police are investigating the discovery of a body in a Ludlow home Thursday morning. Ludlow dispatchers received a call around 9.17 a.m. from Hamden County Sheriff deputies. They were at a home on James Street to conduct a court-ordered eviction. When they arrived at the home, they found a deceased woman inside. The Ludlow Police Department and state police assigned to the district attorney's office are investigating the cause of death, but say there is no danger to the public. Retiring UMass Amherst Chancellor Kumbal Subhaswamy is taking on a new role. Subhaswamy is being appointed as Interim Senior Vice President for Academic and Student Affairs and Equity in Boston. His responsibilities will include oversight of the academic program throughout the University of Massachusetts system and establishing a strategic vision for equity at the five campuses and their 74,000 students. 
Some progress in the fight to save Elmer's in Ashfield. A community group has signed a purchase and sale agreement to acquire the store after the kickoff of an ambitious fundraising effort earlier this year. The group, under the name Elmer's Community Center, Inc., announced on Wednesday they agreed to pay $275,000 for the building and all restaurant equipment. Through the purchase and sale agreement with Greenfield Savings Bank, the bank agreed to forgive all back taxes owed. Elmer's Community Center continues to raise funds for major renovations and the eventual reopening of the store and cafe. According to the organization's website, they're about one-third of the way to their fundraising goal. A smidgen of sunshine this morning, then increasing clouds in a high of 42 to 46. Light rain and snow develops after 7 p.m. tonight, evolving to all snow overnight, a low of 28 to 34. Lingering light snow tomorrow morning, accumulation according to a couple of inches in the valley, up to four inches in the Berkshires. Then a mostly cloudy afternoon, a high of 38 to 42. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are in studio. I'm really looking forward to this segment. I'm looking forward to learning, as I always do, when I'm with our uh, one of our guests. I'm just meeting our other guest, and that guest is executive director of uh, the Community Action of Pioneer Valley, and that's Claire Higgins. Hello, Claire. Hi, Buzz. Hi, Bill. And Peter Wingate, we're just meeting. Hi, what is your title with Community Action? Oh, very nice to meet both of you. I am the Energy Director. And you've got a long history with Community Action programs, I guess. I do. I go back more years than I'm willing to say on the radio. Oh, well, you have a right to remain silent. Claire, Claire Higgins, we should point out, left her former job as mayor of Northampton for, what, nine years, Claire? Eleven and three quarters years, three but quarter. I don't really keep track. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. Those, those, last, two, those last two and three quarters went, went, went by in an eye blink. So. But it's the three quarters she really focused on. <laughs> sorry, I missed it. I, missed, I left out a term in there. Okay, sorry. Uh, and then became executive director of Community Action, which was then... So, yes, I did. And I, it was um, Community Action of the Franklin, Hampshire, and North Quabbin regions, and we decided that... If we couldn't use all of the alphabet letters, we would try to shorten it all together. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we were able to shorten it to Community Action Pioneer Valley. We even took out the of in order to make it really short. Okay, great. Yeah. And yeah. we want to call this segment Community Action, and we're hoping that it can be a monthly segment. I know that, uh, Claire, you are very busy, but we're going to aspire to that. So before we start, what does Community Action do? That's a great question, and depending on which community action agency you work for across the country, there's over a thousand of them across the country in every state. Um, I've met people from Alaska who work in community action agencies to, uh, you know, really across the country. Um, some community action work is done out of municipalities, but most of them are private nonprofit agencies, um, growing out of the war and poverty. Um, and was this was a particular. Uh, agency structure that um, Sergeant Shriver, who was the first head of the Office of Economic Opportunity, wanted. He wanted regions and localities to have a group of people who lived and worked in those regions or localities to plan together how to meet the needs of the people that had the least amount of resources. And so that's been true to this day. This governance structure has changed a little bit. The funding has changed a little bit. They used, we used to be directly funded. Now we're funded through through federal money that goes to the state, but that essential core issue that community action agencies are governed by people who, who live in the region and who have a stake in the region is true. 
So our boards have one-third people who are elected from the participants or the people who with lived experience who are chosen by our participants. One-third are private sector people who have some expertise or, or knowledge to contribute to the work we do, and one-third are appointed by elected officials, in our case, um, state reps or senators, and Jim McGovern has a seat on our board. And you have actually uh, people who benefit from the services which Franklin uh, I'm sorry, I said Franklin. I used to represent <laughs> community action. Community, just say community action. Community it's action. Is we'll global leave it. enough. And yes, we have those folks who have in the past or are currently benefited from the services who are on our board. And in fact, the community action that you are the executive director of has a regional reach. Correct. And I think that has, in fact, it's come came about for a number of reasons, but there was a Franklin Community Action Commission, yes, Hampshire yes. Franklin Community Action Commission, one for the North, for the Quabbin region. Um, it was part of Franklin, I think, at some point. But this regional, right. uh, the regionalization of community action seems to me to actually make an enormous amount of sense, and I've wondered whether it has been helpful to you. You know, we have a big territory. We have about a 1,400-square-mile territory, at least, and um, we serve, uh, pre-COVID, we served about 30,000 people a year, and actually COVID for poor people with the, stim- with the checks and the increase in food stamps. Actually, we saw a little bit of a drop-off in terms of the people who needed our services, right? We're seeing people coming back in, in droves at this point because all that support that the federal government get went away. It's, so we have this big reach. We have a broad geographic area. We also are the Hamden County, Western Hamden County Head Start grantee, so... Peter's program does work in Berkshire County. Uh, so we have a big reach, and but um, the difference in more rural parts of Massachusetts says poor, poor low-income and, and moderate-income people are not all living in one place. There, there's, there, we have every single one of our communities we touch in some way or another because there's people living everywhere that need our assistance. Claire Higgins, Executive Director of Community Action. We're going to talk in just a minute about the emergency that I think the region is facing in terms of the need for heating. Yeah. Yep. It's to have a warm place to live, a warm enough place to live. Before we get there, spend a minute and tell our listeners what else does community yeah, action do? Great question. We we do we do do the heating assistance, but we are uh, a large early childhood provider, uh, providing care to upwards of 400 or more kids a year. Depending, the pandemic has affected our ability to hire, but not the need for this for the care that and and early education that young that families need. We're the WIC grantee for Franklin, Hampshire, and the North Quad. WIC meaning We're women, infants, and t- children. This is nutrition support for for pregnant women and their children up to age five. I think we uh, we have. I think our Client count right now are, is about sixteen hundred, so that's across those those our our service region. We run a family center in Greenfield, that also serves um, uh, has a home visiting program that covers both counties, um, working with young parents. We do youth em- youth employment and we and youth um, leadership development. So in our youth programs, we support GLBTQA um, uh, young people. We do. Uh, uh, substance abuse prevention. Uh, 
there's some other stuff in there, and I'm not going to be able to remember because you have a lot of stuff. And, and, and the and target population, the target population is people right now living under 200 percent of uh, median income, which depends on where. I'd have to look that up. Peter may remember what it is. Right. And I just wanted to uh, maybe maybe it's not a fair question. I'm, you don't have your data, but what percentage of the people who live in the region you everybody service? Everybody we everybody we serve lives lives in the region that we serve. No, I'm just uh, my question oh, okay. is what percentage so the, of those of us who live yeah, here uh, are uh, disadvantaged? by poverty. It, it depends on the, uh, the level of, of area median income, but, w you know, we have, we serve 30,000 people and we're not reaching everybody. So as a percentage of the two counties, which is about, I think about 250,000 people, I would say probably 75,000 could be reached in some way, shape, or form with the services that we have. And I, I, I think that's a low ball. That's, that's a tremendous amount of poverty. In fact, Western Massachusetts, notwithstanding areas of real wealth has a very significant low income. So that's correct. Very low income. So population. of the of this uh, we of the counties in Massachusetts, um, Franklin and Hamden are in the lowest quadrant. Hampshire's in the next lowest, right? Um, so and then Berkshire County also has significant poverty. So in terms and when you say lowest you're talking about poorest. Poorest. Poorest, poorest right. So you know it, Amherst, Amherst numbers and because of students could maybe change it a little bit, but not enough to say that it's, it's not a valid thing to say. And then the other thing to remember here is that our wages are lower than the state as a whole. Our rents are not as low as people think they are, given that we're not in Boston. And um, we don't have ubiquitous public transportation. So many people, working people in, in western Massachusetts, have to t keep two cars on the road if it's a two-parent family, or, or if you're one parent or a single person, you've got to keep a car on the road. When you add those two things together, rent and, and transportation, living in Western Mass can be very expensive. So Community Action Executive Director Claire Higgins, uh, what Bill alluded to earlier as an emergency, if we'd like to hear more from Peter Wingate about what Community Action is doing to address that emergency. I just, and Peter is going to, Peter is the expert on this, but I'd like to put it into a context here. Um, for the entirety of the pandemic, there was a moratorium on shutting off utilities for people. So they didn't have to pay the utility bills and they weren't shut off. This year there's a shutoff. And so that has increased the emergency. Secondly, at the beginning of this fuel year, uh, all of the fuel sp costs spiked dramatically in a way that we hadn't seen in a very long time. So that's the context in which we're coming into this emergency, and there's more, but... Peter Wingate, what do you do? Well, one of the frustrations we've had this year, because we knew that there's a swarm of people coming, we were expecting more people than we've ever had before, and then we ran into a roadblock. I, I can remember running up to Claire's office. She gave me space to really vent. We were all set to get this winter started early, and for us, we know to get the job done, getting winter started early means we have to start in July. So we'll stop, stop there for one second. When you say winter's starting early, what does that mean? Good point. For, for me, that means getting our fuel assistance application process up and running, making sure that we have all the processes in place so we could start mailing out our fuel assistance application to everybody who has been on the program the last couple years. Okay, so Peter Wingate, you are the energy director for the Community Action. Correct. What does this program yeah. do? Yeah. All right, so the entire energy department has three wings to it. 
The biggest wing is the fuel assistance program where we help people make direct payments on their winter heating bills. We also have energy efficiency programs that continue to get bigger and more robust. And we've also got some really good startup programs doing home repairs. And then we're finding ways to blend those three patterns into one um, better service for all of our clients. What I've classified as the emergency, and I think it is, has to do with fuel assistance. People who, as yeah, Claire Higgins has pointed out, are now subject to being cut off so they won't have any. So let, let's, I'm going to jump in here quickly about the macro. Peter, Peter understands the details. I'm just going to say, because we got started late, it meant that we were slower in uh, um, able to being able to verify people's um, applications. So in other words, they have to be financially eligible, eligible. for the we, assistance. We have to, people have to prove that they're financially eligible. That's a complicated process. And even if you were financially eligible the prior year, you still have to prove that you're financially eligible this year. We, on average, would we'll get 9,000 applications in the door. So just think about that for a minute. And okay. how many of those are financially eligible? Uh, uh, probably eight. 8,000. Right? right? But Actually, I've got a good number for you on that. Every year, we're about 86% of people who apply are eligible. And to put that in some context... That's a higher percentage than percentages of free throws made by Michael Jordan. <laughs> That's Peter's also in charge of the sports analogies. <laughs> it's, so, it's, not, it's not what Claire likes most about me. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but but the, the point being that all of those people have to be certified. Okay. Now, there is a moratorium this year on shutoffs. The difference is that it's going to be lifted in April or May, depending when the DPU finally decides, right? So I, I had heard March 1st. Uh, they, I think they almost always extended. Didn't they extend it this year? They did extend it to April 1st. And then there, there may again be another extension depending on what happens. Right? Well, that's good news. But those, so if people are heating with gas and electric, they're not going to be shut off. And if somebody's heating with gas and electric, they should continue to send them money because if you're paying on your bill, they don't shut you off. No matter how much you pay? You can pay a little bit, a small proportion. This is what we really try to help people understand, that it's not an absolute guarantee, but in our experience, as long as somebody shows that they're paying something every month, we're not seeing those people get shut off. Even they're, if they're paying what, uh, Shaq's uh, free, free, free throw percentage is uh, 30%. <laughs> the, but but I, I, the really the concerning number here is the number of people in the region that are heating with oil, kerosene, propane, wood, coal, whatever they're heating with. And people are heating with stuff that, you know, we still have coal customers in western Massachusetts that are heating their home with coal. So they have to have money to give to the person who delivers the fuel. Those are the people we're concerned about most because if they don't have the money, they can't get their fuel delivered. Typically, we don't cover the whole cost of the season. We cover about a third of it. And so... Often they need to pay for their first delivery or their last delivery if we certify them really early. This year we haven't been able to certify people really early. So people are paying, and, and we're now starting to get the bills in so we can pay, those sec- pay on those bills. But slowing down the certification process at the beginning because the applications went out late, no fault of our own, slowed the whole process off. So, so far this year, how many emergency payments have we made for, uti- for f- delivered fuels? We're up over 1,500, and just to give you some context, last year at the same time, we were about 500, so it's, it's really been 
immensely problematic for a lot of households out there and has generated a lot of work for us. I, I really want to take the opportunity to say our staff has really re responded amazingly well, but it's been a tough winter for everybody. Are most of these payments going, I, it seems to me there's two different buckets of... That's correct. Okay, of, of uh, customers who are being assisted here. The one... Well, why don't you describe them? There's, so in, West, in our region, 66% of the people that we serve get their fuel delivered by a huge list of different p companies that are delivering those fuels, right? Oil people, propane people, wood dealers, all the... We have to have... A, we, we have a con accounts with all of them to send the money. And then there are the utility companies, National Grid, Eversource, wh whoever people are getting that from... That's a different payment system that's much simpler. And so we're, we're, we have to have a business side of the house that's cutting all those checks and making sure they get to the right place and making sure that we have all the contracts in place with those vendors, right? So every year we pop up this small business. A lot of it looks the same, but a lot of it looks different too. Vendors come, vendors go, right? <laughs> uh, uh, people who are customers come and go and we have to certify them each year. So it's a complicated business. We are here with Executive Director Claire Higgins and Peter Wingate of Community Action of Pioneer Valley. We're talking about people's uh, needs to survive during the winter in New England who don't have the capacity to pay for the fuel that will keep them warm. We're going to come back, and when we come back, Peter, I'm going to ask you this question. What percentage of people's fuel bills get paid for by this program? We'll be right back. You can make the mountains ring Oh, make the angels cry Though the bird is on the wing And you may not know why Come on, people now Smile on your brother Everybody get together more Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Fill in the blanks. H-A-M-B blank R-G-E-R. -E you get it? How about B blank T-T-E-R L blank N-C-H. I don't have a hard time filling in the blanks. You? If you need to fill in the blanks on your grocery list, hop into State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits right in downtown Northampton. Swing into their big free parking lot between classes before pickup, after drop-off, and fill in the blanks on your grocery list. Or pick up a quick stroller sandwich for lunch for you or your kids. Or heck, you could do all of your grocery shopping there. No blanks left on the list. And did I mention that they're called State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits? You could also pick up some L-I-Q blank O-R. You can fill in all the blanks on your grocery list at State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on State Street downtown Northampton. Hi, this is Linda DeGillis, Vice President and Trust Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services. Investing your money does not mean having to abandon your core values. Environmental and social governance investments, also called ESG investments, allow you to focus your money in businesses and industries that match your environmental and social values and avoid those which do not. Environmental and social governance investments let you put your money where your values are. ESG investments are just one example of how we create individually designed portfolio managers 
management plans for our clients. To learn more about ESG investing and our portfolio management services and for a free consultation, call us at 413-775-8335 or go to the wealth management section of our website at greenfieldsavings.com. Thank you. GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services, offering portfolio management, estate settlement, and trust administration services. Call 413-775-8335 or go to the wealth management section at greenfieldsavings.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Claire Higgins, who is the Executive Director of Community Action Pioneer Valley, and Peter Wingate, who is the Energy Director of Community Action Pioneer Valley. We're talking about the impending emergency of people not being able to pay their fuel bills. Buzz? And I was asking you, Peter Wingate, about um, whether it's possible for you to give us some idea of what percentage of someone who is financially eligible for the assistance that you provide what percentage of their fuel bills will be paid for through the, this grant? And it certainly does vary a lot. Just like we talked about, some people are really careful, maybe overly careful, keep their homes really cool so that they're not using as much fuel. Other people, for health reasons, don't have that luxury. They need to have those homes warm. So we'll see people with heating bills anywhere between $1,000 and $3,000. This year, our benefit level ranges from $960 up to $1,600. So again, we're looking at maybe a third to maybe sometimes half of the cost of winter heating bill is what we're able to help with. I read a, a Boston Globe article about people keeping their homes at 50 because they could not afford the fuel. Tell us about that. Yeah, we absolutely see that. We see it firsthand. We hear from people who come into our office, but also through our energy efficiency program where we have staff going out to people's homes all throughout the two county regions. It is absolutely happening where a lot of people are trying to do things that you need to do to survive. People are running wood stoves. Hopefully those wood stoves are safe. We see a lot of people who can't get an oil delivery use whatever means possible. And sometimes people who are cold don't always make the best decisions for any of us. They use electric space heaters that may not be as safe as we'd, as we'd like to see. And I know a, a number of our faith-based organizations are asking for um, share the warmth. They want more sweaters this year than they've ever needed before because people's homes are so cold. It's... Well, I was about to say chilling, but the play on words is inappropriate right now. Yeah, we have in, in Western Mass some of the oldest housing stock in the, in the Commonwealth, too, which means that houses are under-insulated. The heating systems are not as, as efficient as they can be. We run a program to put mini-splits, the, the newer versions of the mini-splits, into people's homes if they're eligible for that service. And as a part of coming into through the fuel assistance door, we can, ha we can be mass safe for those people that walk in our door. And we can assess their home, button it up, and if they need a new burner or if they want to uh, do a mini-split switch, we can work with them on that. But really, the front end is that fuel assistance door, and it has not worked as well as it should. And I'm really sorry about that because I know it's been uh, so stressful to, for so many people. We are over the mountain here. We have m more applications now approved than we had in the door than we had before. We're sliding down the other side. We're getting to the, the, the pile that is still pending. We're asking people who have, uh, have a bill from their, uh, they applied and they got the bill, send it in to us so that we can see what we're supposed to be doing with that bill. If, uh, am I getting that right, Bill? Peter, if, they, if, if the oil delivery person delivered the oil 
if the, if the delivery has been made and it hasn't been paid for, we can probably still help you out once we get you certified as eligible. Right. So they should be. In, and the other problem is that we are short staffed this year, just like everybody else. We're short staffed in just about every single department. Uh, when we're full, fully staffed, we have about 300 people. Right now we're down 60. We have 60 or more uh, positions vacant. So um, if you're looking for a job, go to our website. We could use your help in mm -hmm. any number of our departments. And I, I think we're a pretty good employer, and you get to do work that is, is work for the community, right? But that challenge, you know, we brought in temps into the fuel assistance program to help do certifications. We've done everything we can to beef up the staff to keep it going, too. This is not unique to us across the state. Everybody is struggling to stay ahead of this um, tsunami of, of applications and other unfortunate events. Well, let me just take a very brief detour. Is there still an insulation or program where community action helps insulate houses? Because that's obviously, at least in the big picture, it doesn't help someone stay warm today. But in the big picture, that seems to be important. Absolutely. We, um, Peter can tell you exactly what we do because I, I really don't know. Yeah, I, I practically have insulation running through my bloodstream, so that is my real area of knowledge. Yeah, we have some very robust programs. Uh, Massachusetts just has some wonderful programs tied into funding with the utilities, all really based in the Green Communities Act of 2008. And then on top of that, the federal government, the Department of Energy funding for the weatherization assistance program is growing by leaps and bounds. So I don't want to make up numbers, but we're hoping to be fully weatherizing 300 to 400 homes a year. We've bringing on new contractors. We've hired more auditors. We're really building up for this new influx of funding. So is Mass Save? is that what that, that program used to be called anyway? Yeah, we are in many ways the Mass Save for people who are income eligible. Got it. If you're on fuel assistance, you are eligible for our weatherization programs. That's the door. Fuel assistance or being on the low income rate on your utility bill, right? Am I right about that, Peter? That's right. Uh, and you can reach out to your utility company and ask to be put on the low income rate. And I believe we have that on our website as well, how to do that. So would you tell us where, what your website is yeah. and how people can actually locate the fuel assistance? Um, it's communityaction.us is our, uh, is our URL. And so look us up, Community Action. Uh, it's community, and if you just type in Community Action Pioneer Valley, it'll bring you directly to the to the. Um, to the website, and we also um, have uh, there's a tab that says fuel assistance. And, and, and right on the front, there is a first page. There's lots of information about fuel assistance. We don't want to make people dig. And people can actually apply for fuel assistance right online from that website. This is brand new to this year. It's, it's really exciting. Claire mentioned about the transportation issues we have in this region. Wow, now people can apply without even having to come physically to our space. So Claire Higgins and Peter Wingate. We just have a minute or so left, but I want you to tell me this. One thing that drives me absolutely nuts is the idea that people in our community are hungry. The second thing that I have this equally just just visceral reaction is the idea that our people are in their homes and cold. cold yeah. And I'm wondering, and I think that our listeners are maybe wondering, is there anything I can do to help? Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, we run a fund called Heat Up. There are people who may, for various reasons, need help beyond what fuel assistance can give them. If, if they call and they need more help, they call the, the Community Action, Community Resources and Advocacy line. Those folks can help 
with generally with financial challenges that people are having, and specifically they have access to the heat up money. But we need donations to heat up because every we we've never gotten that more than we never gotten up higher than I think thirty or forty thousand dollars in there in a year. We could run through that easily, right? So, and we will I think this year. So if people want to donate to the community action agency's heat up fund. We will use that directly to help people keep their homes warm. We also have a pantry. We use that to help people eat, right? That's food and, and, and food and shelter are, are, are fundamental, and we are trying to work on both of those sides. Can we donate online at your website? Yep, we have a donation button on the, on the website as well. And um, Heat Up is probably um, the most critical piece right now. Generally, we, we raise money more generally, too, so that we can plug it in wherever we need it at any given time during the course of a year. I'll tell you, over the last two years, we've, with our fundraise money, we've paid for motel rooms for people who were living outside that needed a bridge to get indoors. We've paid for uh, transportation for people who needed to get to and from various places. We've bought groceries for people who couldn't get to the pantry. We've used it to heat people's homes. That donated money goes directly to help people with whatever those things are. Well, Claire Higgins and Peter Wingate, I, uh, I can't thank you enough, not just for being here today and explaining fuel assistance, but for what you do. You change lives. Community action changes lives. And we're so grateful. We're going to try to see you monthly. I know how busy you are. Uh, we'd really like to talk about early childhood and daycare. We uh, will do that. Well, let's do that. That'll yeah. be great. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Peter. Be right back. It's cold Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Police are investigating the discovery of a body in a Ludlow home Thursday morning. Ludlow dispatchers received a call around 9.17 a.m. from Hamden County Sheriff deputies. They were at a home on James Street to conduct a court-ordered eviction. When they arrived at the home, they found a deceased woman inside. The Ludlow Police Department and state police assigned to the district attorney's office are investigating the cause of death, but say there is no danger to the public. Retiring UMass Amherst Chancellor Kumbal Subhaswamy is taking on a new role. Subhaswamy is being appointed as Interim Senior Vice President for Academic and Student Affairs and Equity in Boston. His responsibilities will include oversight of the academic program throughout the University of Massachusetts system and establishing a strategic vision for equity at the five campuses and their 74,000 students. Some progress in the fight to save Elmer's in Ashfield. A community group has signed a purchase and sale agreement to acquire the store after the kickoff of an ambitious fundraising effort earlier this year. The group, under the name Elmer's Community Center, Inc., announced on Wednesday they agreed to pay $275,000 for the building and all restaurant equipment. Through the purchase and sale agreement with Greenfield Savings Bank, the bank agreed to forgive all back taxes owed. Elmer's Community Center continues to raise funds for major renovations and the eventual reopening of the store and cafe. According to the organization's website, they're about one-third of the way to their fundraising goal. 
A smidgen of sunshine this morning, then increasing clouds in a high of 42 to 46. Light rain and snow develops after 7 p.m. tonight, evolving to all snow overnight, a low of 28 to 34. Lingering light snow tomorrow morning, accumulation coating to a couple of inches in the valley, up to four inches in the Berkshires. Then a mostly cloudy afternoon, a high of 38 to 42. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. At PV Squared Solar, we live by our mission, energizing a brighter future for people and planet. This year, we are celebrating our 20th anniversary. 20 years of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar. 20 years of relationships founded on trust and clean energy. 20 years of powerful cooperation. Thank you for the partnerships along the way, and we look forward to serving this community for 20 years more. Happy birthday, PV Squared! Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Used car prices, which began falling from their record highs last fall, are going up again, at least for dealers. Cox Automotive reports the wholesale price dealers paid for used vehicles at auction jumped 4.3% from January to February, a significant one-month increase. A new report from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau raises an additional concern about the growing popularity of buy-now, pay-later financing programs. After analyzing who is taking out these loans, the agency concludes most borrowers are already loaded down with debt. Job openings declined slightly in January, but still far outnumber available workers as the labor picture remains tight. The Labor Department's Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey showed there are more than 10 million job openings, nearly two jobs per available worker. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is Talk the Talk. So on Sunday evening, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences will host this year's production for the Oscars, and we're told that millions, even billions, may be watching. And they will not be watching to watch uh, to find out which best boy grip wins an Oscar. They're going to be watching because there's this incredible assemblage of celebrity in one place. These luminaries, the aura in that place is going to be brilliant, but not as brilliant, Dan Torres, mm -hmm. as the lights that are shining here in this studio with these luminaries of the Northampton political scene. So I'm at the Oscars, is what you're telling me. How's it feel? It feels great. Why uh, are you I'm... wearing sunglasses? <laughs> well, I'll tell you about it tomorrow. <laughs> so we have former mayor uh, Claire Higgins, who served for 11 and three-quarter years in that capacity. We have, I think, a 20-year veteran, a president oh. of Northampton City Council in Bill Dwight. What are course. they up for? And we have this incredible observer of the political scene in Northampton. Increase medication. <laughs> uh, what's his this name? Is the, this is the time oh. when they say, it's not your enemies who are the problem, it's your friends. <laughs> this is after I asked them to let me do the introduction quietly. Yeah, well, that's the last time for that. <laughs> 
Well, we do have this political observer, Bob. Bob Newman, is it Bob? What? <laughs> Bob's your uncle. <laughs> Moving along, Buzz. Yes. So my very first question for this, these luminaries here, I'll ask it of Bill Dwight. Okay. Who are you wearing? <laughs> Carhartt. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I've picked out this ensemble uh, this morning, and I, I think, you know, talk about visionary. There's a visionary design um, in, in Carhartt. There you go. So, Bill Newman, you uh, have read the opinion of the Supreme Judicial Court that was issued earlier this week, the unanimous opinion in Barron versus Kalenda out of uh, Southboro. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and why you were very excited about it? Well, let's start for those who don't know yet what this decision says, because it's going to be very, very prominently debated and discussed in cities and towns across Massachusetts. That debate has already begun. What happened in Barron is that there was a dispute at a uh, a municipal meeting. Select board meeting. And at the select board meeting, uh, there were some intemperate words exchanged. And the speaker was informed, Barron, Louise Barron, was informed that if she didn't sit down and shut up, she was going to be removed from the meeting. Uh, As you can see, tempers did flare. She brought a lawsuit seeking a declaration that what she did was constitutionally, what she engaged in was constitutionally protected speech under the Massachusetts Constitution, under two provisions of the Massachusetts Constitution. One is the right to assemble, Article 19, and one is the right to speak, Article 16, which are, first of all, the uh, predecessors of the First Amendment because the federal Constitution was based on the Massachusetts Constitution. And second, those provisions are more robust traditionally than the free speech and assembly right to assemble provisions in the First Amendment. And the Supreme Judicial Court did a historical analysis of what was meant by the right to assemble and the right to speak and said, look, when John Adams wrote this provision for the Massachusetts Constitution, they were not having quiet little tea cups and nice moderated and modulated discussions about the king. They had some really nasty things to say about the king and his representatives here in Massachusetts. And the ability to be able to speak freely and robustly is a central, crucial piece of our constitutional rights. And when people are assembled, as they are in public speak time, they have a right to speak forcefully and they have a right to express themselves. And that is the guts and the heart of this decision. I hasten to say that the court also said that the persons running the meeting uh, have uh, wide uh, latitude to impose reasonable, and for the body to impose reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions, and they have not, uh, as has been misrepresented, sort of said, well, have have at it, it's a free-for-all. That's not what they said. What they did say, words are protected, and we have the right as citizens to criticize and intensely criticize the public officials who are presiding at those meetings. Right. Good synopsis. And and this particular opinion, it talks about 
rude language, insulting language, and you, former mayor of almost a dozen years, uh, Claire Higgins, tell us the truth. Give us a window. When somebody was particularly harsh and insulting in their critique, because there's always a critique of what you were doing uh, or what you intended to do or what you thought were your priorities, what did you really think? I really can't tell you that. <laughs> that you, you have a six-second delay, right? <laughs> oh, right. I mean, Subject to the FCC and George Carlin, what did you really think? So, uh, actually, I'm going to defer to Councillor Dwight because he actually thought maybe there was a way to think about this differently because there was a period of time where there were, uh, was an awful lot of um, very harsh language, very personally uh, directed language at public comment in the city of Northampton, but then chose to withdraw it. Um, and I won't go into the details about why he did that. Um, besides, it was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, we should, maybe we should invite those who are listening into the conversation we were having before we went on, on the air. And Bill Dwight... Well, it's your story, Bill. Well, it, 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 it was your proposal, too. Actually, the uh, Claire's right. Actually, uh, what inspired her, I was a brand-new counselor. Uh, there was a marked lack of civility or anything that might even go close to describing that. You know, we've, we've been through some his, historically recent and less recent uh, dramatic behaviors been done in in. in in the public comment section of, of uh, council meetings. Claire was the target. Mary Ford was certainly the target at a time when... Former mayor. Of yeah, the former the mayor who preceded Claire. Who I think did have that nine years. I think I was confused. Was it you? Was she it served, Mary? She served eight. Ah, uh, there we go. Okay. Um, Dave Musanti served 12. I served almost 12. Okay, thank you. And thank uh, you for the refresher. And I think Dave Nark David Narkowitz served 10. Okay. Yeah. Maybe Calvin was, Coolidge, how long did he serve? Maybe an hour. Maybe, <laughs> maybe four. Yeah, he, he wasn't around long. He was. He had a trajectory. So, in any event, there were there were. It, it was vicious. I mean, and and I'm not talking about just mild insults. I mean, overt threats, screaming, yelling, protests, running over, uh, just running roughshod with rules. And the rules, actually, as this decision states, is the uh, Massachusetts does not require a public comment period. You can actually uh, not have one. And Which, uh, I just want to insert, up. that's what was going on here. The select board meeting went on for two and a half hours. They opened it to a public comment hearing, and, and that that's where this occurred. Right, and a number of communities have varying rules and the like. And, in fact, what I had proposed was essentially rules that would govern us and, and the public by extension, but how we would how our debate would be. Right, and Northampton has changed the rules. So, for example, there were endless council meetings with uh, – Public comment in Northampton happening at the beginning, before the official meeting. That doesn't happen everywhere. And then there was no time limit. Right. So there would be two and a half hours or three hours of public comment, and then then the council could get so to the, the and agenda. There's, there's two levels of, of time limit. One is individual time limit, and the second is the total amount of time you put on your agenda for time limit. And in the Supreme Judicial Court, in this decision, says those are, Both reason are reasonable. reasonable. And, they, and in fact, actually, the, the town that, that generated this case, actually, South they had written their rules and embedded what's part of open meeting law, the open meeting law rules. But then what tripped them up was 
what they put in front of it, which is basically uh, an interpretation of what would be considered rude or what would be considered inappropriate language was apparently up to the discretion of the chair. And that that's, you can't do that. And we figured that out too. And that's why my rule was stupid. It was, uh, it what was, was your rule? Can you articulate it? Well, it was, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it was, it was essentially that we be needed nice. to conduct. Yeah. Be, be nice. nice. We need to, I, I had a ponytail. I was, but here's, here's what the SJC had to say about that. When you have a rule like that, be civil, be nice. Right. It says, as long as you want to say really nice things about your elected officials, right. they're sweet, they're lovely, right. they're smart, they're so intelligent, they're brilliant, they do great things, you can say that. But if you want to go to the other end of the spectrum and be critical, then you can't, and it's content-based discrimination. Well, this is Dan. I want to say, well, I think in theory I agree with this decision. I worry about the practicality of this because we live in extremely polarized era and times, and people are going to say some things about people, and they could say it to the moderator directly, but they know who they're really talking to. And if I all of a sudden start throwing swear words at them, they, you know what's going to happen. And I guess that's, JC is saying, no, you can regulate that, but at what point? What rules? Well, what then, laws? I mean, I mean, where are we going to go with this? The, it, there's a number of problems yeah. and challenges that come with it. And that was demonstrated actually pretty graphically during COVID, particularly after Breonna Taylor. Uh, lynching and the Floyd lynching. Um, there was a defund the police thing. We had meetings going till three thirty in the morning because there was no limit to public comment, and literally people were ca calling in from Denver and other places so that anyone could participate. So the the topography changed, and consequently, you'll see Amherst is about is is now considering changing their rules to allow for um, well to allow the legislative body to do what it was that they signed on to do. And this is what happened in Northampton. We couldn't legislate. We could not work. We had, we were dealing with a budget and we didn't start the budget discussion until 1130 one night. Um, and at that point we're not at our sharpest. Then this is the, people would argue we're not at our sharpest when we walked in the door. But the fact is, is that we were less sharp. Come on, leave a few lines for us, Bill. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. But Were you stupid? Yeah, it was, we got stupid. <laughs> yeah, but, but let's just be clear. This is an important decision, and it is a meaningful decision. And the Supreme Judicial Court said that the assembly provision of the Massachusetts Constitution arose out of fierce opposition to governmental authority. It was designed to protect such opposition, even if it was rude, personal, and disrespectful yeah. to public figures. All that having been said, the amount of time that we've been talking about, the Supreme Judicial Court is really clear that the public body Absolutely. can limit the time, yes. both the time for the speaker and, and the, the amount, of time, amount of time, total amount. I, I think what they did was put a box around it and said, within whatever frame the local body wants to give you, you can pretty much say anything. But then, then it comes down to a culture in the community of how does that public comment both happen and get, and get used. And different communities... Some of them are, are yell fests every time. Mm -hmm. Some are not, right? So how does that culture develop over time and, and what derails that culture? So that's a diff whole different conversation. I don't disagree with the decision. I agree with the decision. And I think uh, I would have signed on to this, the, the seventh right. nothing decision as well. And I am a moderator of almost a quarter of a century in, in Ashfield, and I am in the front of the room trying to maintain orderly discourse yeah. on yeah. important yeah. topics. And we're going to talk about some of the challenges that that presents with our leadership team here um, right after this. 
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Paddington goes next door to borrow a cup of sugar from his neighbor, Mr. Curry. Mr. Curry is in a panic. He's expecting a visit from his great aunt Matilda. So Paddington volunteers to help Mr. Curry with his to-do list before Aunt Matilda's imminent arrival. Repairing the pipes in the bathroom, vacuuming the floor, baking a cake. But in typical Paddington fashion, nothing goes according to plan. The pipes burst and the bathroom floods. The vacuum cleaner misbehaves. And what the heck went wrong with that cake recipe, Paddington? The UMass Fine Arts Center presents Paddington Gets in a Jam, a Sunday matinee, March 12th at 3 p.m. For tickets, go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website. Will the well-meaning Paddington be able to make everything right before Aunt Matilda arrives? Be there for Paddington Gets in a Jam, Sunday, March 12th at 3 at UMass Amherst. It's time to start thinking about cleaning up your yard. Weinzig Nursery carries a variety of tools, fertilizers, tree sprays, soils, mulches, and more to revitalize your yard this spring. It's a great time to prune many varieties of trees and shrubs, cut back spent perennials and grasses, and give your lawn a boost with fertilizers and weed preventers. Get ready for spring with everything you need from Weinzig Nursery on Route 9 in Hadley and at WeinzigNursery.com. We are the grower. Come to the source. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. RiverValley.com. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with former Mayor Claire Higgins and former longtime president of the City Council, Bill Dwight. We are talking about the new decision by the Supreme Judicial Court this past week, Barron versus Colenda. The decision holds that there is a constitutional right under the Massachusetts Constitution to robust, even rude speech at public speak time before public bodies. What is getting lost in the discussion somewhat is the Supreme Judicial Court has also made clear that numerous restrictions are permissible. Bill Dwight, you have some thoughts about that. Yes. I mean, we, we, one of the concerns that uh, Claire expressed years ago uh, as mayor and the presiding officer of the uh, council 
and I've I back in the up. days when the mayor presided over the council. That, that's right. We, 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 let's talk about charter reform. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's but, for an evening show, maybe a late night show. <laughs> I, I'll get drunk first. <laughs> yeah, good plan. But in any event, what she she made the stipulation that uh, speakers could not address private individuals who were not elected officials. Elected officials are fair game, and I also said the same thing. Well, you can say whatever you want about us. We That's what we signed up for, we're public people. Um, a parking enforcement officer is not. They are just doing their job. They are doing a job and not and should not be subjected to an opportunity for someone to just, because they were bad, they were mad they didn't get there fast enough for their quarter, that they could go and do, and in some cases we had like performance pieces calling them liars or calling or other horrible things. And Claire made and stipulated that there, there is a line and I will protect uh, municipal employees. Now, the fact is, is that wasn't embedded in any of our rules. It wasn't the policy. It, uh, it, it was, I mean, it was sort of made up as to, to accommodate the situation as it presented itself. Um, and therein lies a problem. The presiding officer should actually not be making up rules at the spot to decide what content is and is not I, permissible. I, I agree, but I think we were on uncharted territory. There. No, no. I'm, yeah, I think that's right. Ultimately, that well, stuff should I be. I just want to say, as a chair, as a moderator, and we only have a couple of minutes. I wish we had a couple hours to continue yeah. this conversation, but uh, I'll make it as quick as I can. Uh, sometimes it's up to the chair to make rules to promote discussion that it's a little bit more nuanced than this opinion allows for. For example, what I've done as moderator, if, if there's polarized positions on uh, an issue, I just say you may not applaud after somebody has spoken. Now, in some ways, I'm just chilling somebody's right to express their, you know, glee over what they just heard. But I found that um, sitting next to Bill Dwight right now, if I talk about, and we're talking about our children, and I'm talking about how this is important for our children, it daunts Bill Dwight, he might not want to get up and talk in front of his neighbors after we've heard that this is life or death for our children. It gets complicated. It, 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 it is, it doesn't, it promotes free speech, but at the same, it, it actually allows free speech. It does not promote it necessarily is the point I was trying to make there. I think that that it, it, it is problematic. It's tricky. It, some communities actually allow back and forth debate. In Holyoke, the uh, city council will start arguing with someone speaking in public comment, and plus they already limit the time so they can filibuster. We have to. Ours was rule, and I think it's a good one: is that we sit on our hands and chew our tongues and say not a word. We do not respond to even direct questions in public comment. It's uh, time for the public's uh, sp time to speak, not. They're not participants in the debate. That comes on the floor. That's up to the legislators who were elected to do that. You know, Claire Higgins, that tomorrow's Gazette, above the fold, the headline's going to be Bill Dwight bites his tongue and doesn't talk. <laughs> I have nothing to say about that. <laughs> I, Bill, Bill Dwight invokes his right to remain silent. Headline, <laughs> Daily Hampshire and Gazette. Now we can applaud. <laughs> Everybody. I, but the no applause rule and all these other things are, are, put, are making sure the box is clear enough so that the legislative body can do their work and the public can have their free speech rights to the best extent possible in that kind of forum. I think that's what that does. What a wonderful way to end it. Bill, last word. That's it. It was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing part of your day with us.
<laughs> this is Talk the Talk. Remember to walk the walk with Claire, Bill, Bill, Dan, and Buzz. This is Talk the Talk. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's a